0: From Kirkco Media.
1: So what you gonna do about
0: it? Okay, let's dive in to a Supreme Court edition of Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Here to chat about how truly ground-shaking this pandemic has been on our country's critical decisions expected from our federal and Supreme Courts. Connecting through Zoom, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, and worldwide lecturer, Professor Ed Larson, good to see you again, Ed. Well, nice to see you, if only on Zoom. Also Zooming in, Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who's represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials all over the world. She's been involved in several U.S. presidential campaigns, and Jane is one of the most politically astute and passionate activists we've ever met. Hey, Jane, nice to remotely see you, too.
2: Nice to see you, Bill. It's always good to be
0: here. Joining by Zoom are two special guests today, First, Susanna Sherry, Herman O'Lohenstein Chair and Professor in Law. Susanna's work in the area of constitutional law has earned her national recognition as one of the most well-known scholars in her field. She has authored more than 100 books and articles. And today, we'll be tapping her for her extensive work in the area of federal courts and our Supreme Court. Susanna has been with Vanderbilt since the turn of the century. Doesn't that sound like a long time? Welcome, Susanna.
3: Thank you, Bill. It's nice to be here.
0: And lastly, Jed Rubinfeld. He is the Robert R. Slaughter Professor at Law at Yale Law School. He's a renowned expert in constitutional law, privacy, First Amendment, and criminal law. And he's a prolific author of many books. But we're going to focus today on his expertise exhibited in his book, Revolution by Judiciary, The Structure of American Constitutional Law. And yes, we are talking Supreme Court during a pandemic. Professor Rubenfeld received his A.B. from Princeton and his J.D. from Harvard. Welcome, Jed. Nice to have you here.
4: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So, Ed, you know, we always like to start off with you and I'd like to talk to you about your recent article on uh, NBC, Uh, remembering this is an election year. While we've been focused elsewhere, this year's election will stretch the very fabric of America's democratic premise, not only due to the unique players of this presidential race, but the pandemic environment that opens arguments over the concept and political ramifications and security of voting by mail. So, Ed, tell us a little about that article of what happens if there's no
1: election. It's an odd thought. That there'd be no election. But I suppose people have to think about it. And because I've written several articles on the 20th Amendment and have books on both the first presidential election and the 1800 election, when these were real issues, uh, NBC asked me to inquired, well, what happens if we don't have an election? And so you can look at the Constitution. And it makes clear in the 20th Amendment that Without an election, the current president's term, or even with an election, the current president's term ends at noon on January 20th. What happens if there hasn't been an election? Well, what you can fall back on without an election is the states can just name electors, but doesn't quite stop then because they have to send those people they name as electors off to Congress. And the constitution says that they have to be counted and they have to be counted in front of the House and Senate. Well, if there's no election, there's a question of, is there a House of Representatives? There will be a Senate. We know there'll be a Senate because the Senate's a continuing body. And this year, even though the senators and current House members' terms end on January 3rd, two thirds of the Senate will go on. But the question is, would there be a House of Representatives? They can only be elected. And if they required that the votes indeed had to be counted by the House and the Senate. Then under the lines of succession, if there's no House of Representatives, there's no speaker, there's no vice president because his term too ends. Well, we're left with the president pro tem of the Senate, which by tradition with a democratic controlled Senate would be Patrick Leahy of Vermont.
0: So let me ask Susanna, in the case of this unique election, with the unique parties involved and the unlikely event that our current president simply just follows the law, let's just say that we did go this route and both the Senate and the president said, let's not have an election because this pandemic is preventing people from voting the way we think they should vote. Is that going to go to the Supreme Court and how would that proceed?
3: I think Ed's description of who would probably be president and why is a pretty good one, but there would be people who challenged it. It might be Trump, it might be Pence, it might be somebody who claimed that they their vote was diluted or that they couldn't vote. And then the question is whether this becomes something that the Supreme Court can hear, or whether the Supreme Court decides that this is what they call a political question. That is, it not something for the court to decide. So I think if it does get to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will decide it very quickly. But I think they would find that it was a political
4: question.
2: But they didn't view it as a political question in the Bush-Gore election, when the, the question about the Florida election came up. Is there anything that makes you think this would be different?
3: Well, um, first of all, it's, I think, a different court. They've also, they've sent a signal. Um, they asked for a more, briefing on political questions in the uh, Trump subpoena cases. Uh, and so it seems like they might be interested in uh, expanding the political question doctrine. Also, a couple of years ago, they held that gerrymandering uh, was a political question. Uh, and as of 2000, the political question doctrine um, was pretty moribund. It really, uh, the, the court really didn't use it very much. But then, more recently, they they seem to have indicated um, that they don't necessarily want to step into some of these uh, some of these
2: disputes. You did get a sense that the Supreme Court ultimately stepped in because there was somewhat of a concern that it had gone on so long, and they wanted to make an end of it.
1: This would be an issue between the branches. Bush versus Gore was a federalism question of should the states run the election or should the federal government run the election? If it's a question of counting electors and seeing if electors are valid, the Constitution is clear. It says the House and the Senate shall make the count. Also, when we're dealing with elections, and Bill asked the question, what if there were no election? Actually, the word is no elections because the November elections are plural because in our country, every state conducts the election. The federal government, interestingly, sets the date. It's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, November 3rd this year. And that's when you have to have the federal election if you have one. But the states conduct it. And so my guess is it won't be a case of no elections. It's a question is, if some states don't have elections and unlike primaries where we saw governors and and different states postponing them they really can't postpone the federal elections they have to be on November 3rd or they don't happen and then they have to be special elections for Congress
4: I think the courts would get involved much earlier I, I don't think we're going to have a no election scenario and then the crazy no president scenario in January I, I think any effort made by any state to cancel an election before November is going to be instantly reviewed by courts. I believe courts would be active there, would not find it a, you know, a political question or find some other reason to duck it. I think, and I think, you know, the recent cases actually just in the last few weeks bear this out. I think courts get involved. They don't let elections get canceled. They're going to find invalid any effort by any state to cancel an election in the middle of an election year. I I just don't think they'll allow it.
3: I absolutely agree that the elections are not going to get canceled. They may be Suspect in various ways. I mean, I think we're going to have a hard time, but but they won't be canceled.
0: So, Jed, what do you think with this election coming up? If it is close in pivotal states, do you see any way for this election not to end up in the hands of the Supreme Court? You
4: know, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. But um, if you know, if Bush versus Gore is any indication of, of how that would turn out, uh, that's one of the worst cases, worst decided, worst reasoned cases. Uh, you know. Uh, in the last 100 years, in my opinion, and if it turned out the Supreme Court had to decide this coming election, I think that, uh, you know, we all would would be extremely concerned that we just see a repeat of that, but, uh, but you know, who knows? I, I agree with Susanna that it's going to be a mess, and I think it's a perfectly realistic possibility. If it does come to the Supreme Court
3: essentially deciding the election rather than deciding one issue at a time. I think Chief Justice Roberts is really concerned about the reputation of the court and of himself and his legacy. And he has been trying very hard to avoid having the court seem political. And particularly with two Trump appointees on the court deciding the election, Um, remember in 2000, um, neither Bush nor Gore had appointed any of the justices, so they could all claim to be neutral. I think Roberts is going to try his best either not to get involved, not to involve the court, or to make it as apolitical as possible.
0: So one of the cases that the courts have already heard, Susanna, that I'd like you to comment on is a slightly different look at the election. Uh, The New York Times was saying that one of the most pressing cases on the court docket concerns whether members of the Electoral College may cast their vote for a presidential candidate other than the ones they had been pledged to support.
3: Yeah, this is uh, is two consolidated cases, Chiafalo and Baca, one of them's out of Washington and one of them's out of Colorado. Um, And basically what those states do is, uh, and most states do this, is either uh, fine uh, electors who don't vote for the candidate that they were pledged to, or in some cases, they simply remove them and replace, the states will replace them with somebody else. Um, And the question is whether that's constitutional, and um, it's clearly not. framers of the Constitution intended the electors to be independent, that is intended them to meet as a college, that is to meet together within their states and deliberate, not just rubber stamp whatever the state uh, populace had voted for. Uh, The Constitutional Convention spent more time figuring out um, how the president would be elected, whether he would be re- eligible for reelection, and how, if at all, he was removable. Then they spent on anything else except for uh, representation in Congress, and they kept going in circles because they were afraid they they didn't want a popular election. So well, maybe the states should choose him. Maybe the the legislature should choose him. If the legislature chooses him and he's eligible for re-election, then he won't be independent. He'll do whatever the legislature wants. If he's not eligible for re-election, well, then he's likely to be a tyrant and make the most of his short time in office. And they went round and round and round. And finally, one of the committees came up with the idea of the Electoral College and in the process invented the vice president. Why did we need a vice president? Because the electoral college, the system would only work if the electors voted for two people. Why? Because one of them had to be not from the elector's state. Because everybody figured okay, the Virginians, well, everybody knew. Washington would be the first the first president, but after that, the Virginians would choose Madison and the Massachusetts people would choose Adams and, you know, everybody would choose someone from their own state, but forcing them to choose two, one of whom could not be from their own state, meant that they would choose, as, as one of the founders put it, something, uh, the best characters. So that's where the Electoral College comes from, what it's meant to do. And there is absolutely no doubt that they intended electors to be free to vote for
1: whoever they want.
0: Ed, I know that you have something to say about the Electoral College. The key
1: issue, I think, rather than having this idea that they didn't trust the people, I think it was voter suppression from day one that the South uh, was mostly made up of African-Americans or slaves, and they weren't going to let them vote, if it was a straight popular election, well, the North would win every election because they let all their people vote. In the South, they suppressed the vote because they didn't let slaves and black people vote. And then you go even radical than that. New Jersey let women vote. And you could see if you, if you just counted the sheer numbers, well, every Northern state would start letting women vote. And uh, so I think the issue behind this, if you look at who pushed for the Electoral College in the end, people like Madison, it was a Southern conspiracy because they wanted some other system that would allow each state to suppress the hell out of their votes if they wanted to, but still get the same clout in the Electoral College. And this has the other advantage that these people can be independent and they can be wise. Once you have that, of course they meant that each of these electors, just as Susanna said, these electors could exercise their best judgment. And I'm assuming that's the way the Supreme Court will come down. I have a lot of sympathy for these so-called faithless elector
4: statutes. These are the statutes that try to insist that electors vote the way that you know they were that the voters the actual citizens who voted expected them to vote i have sympathy just because what you know those statutes in principle in theory do is they um make the election more uh, you know democratically functional more democratically accountable and uh, um so i just wanted to i I'm, of course Suzanne is absolutely right in her historical analysis but i I I have a lot of sympathy for those statutes.
0: And in wrap up, of course, in our last election, the people's popular vote was, excuse the expression, trumped by the structure of the Electoral College.
3: I think this is a problem that is getting worse. The problem is the imbalance that is introduced by uh, having the number of electors be the number of representatives plus the number of senators. So the representatives aren't perfect. It isn't perfectly apportioned. First of all, every state gets at least one, no matter how small they are. And second, there's various rounding problems. And so that's that's not perfectly apportioned. And when you add to that the fact that every state gets uh, two additional electors from their senators, it means that the less populated states, which generally are rural and conservative, um, they have an outsized vote in the Electoral College. So what this means is you're almost never, and I don't think we will, see a Democrat win the Electoral College but lose the popular vote, but we will more and more see Republicans win the Electoral College but lose the popular vote.
0: Very interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to go make myself a tidy bowl cocktail, and we'll be back in about 30 seconds, and we're going to dive into the federal courts, the Supreme Court, and how they're operating in times of a pandemic. We'll be right back.
1: It will be. On Medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co Media. So, what you gonna do about
0: it? Okay, we're back with Ed, Jane, and our constitutional law experts, Susanna Sherry and Jeb Rubenfeld. While the U.S. state and federal courts have, at times in the past, allowed cameras in the courts, judicial conference policies don't necessarily apply to the Supreme Court. First of all, wouldn't you think that in the case of the Supreme Court, wouldn't they be the most transparent court in the country? Why are no cameras in the courtroom?
4: I mean, I think what happened recently is is interesting because, of course, the court has always adhered to the tradition that there should be some access, some public access. That's been fundamental to the American judiciary from the, from the beginning. And then they had this problem with the pandemic. If you're not gonna let people in, how do you get any public access? And uh, you know, they had a problem and all of a sudden, now we're seeing you know, publicly real-time accessible arguments know even if it's only audio but uh you know we're seeing things we never saw and and i I didn't expect to see it at all but so there have been dramatic changes that way i can't answer the question about why they haven't been more transparent in the past i just
0: don't know
3: i think it's very interesting that when they decided to um uh, go remote they went to teleconferencing
0: isn't that because the average age of these folks is (laughs) uh, you know that of the dial telephone
2: I don't think so. I mean, on that, I used to live in Washington, DC. I'm a member of the Supreme Court Bar. The Supreme Court decided not to allow televisions in the courtroom a long time ago. And I think that was the right decision. And I think the OJ trial was the supreme uh, example of how uh, this thing can get hijacked in our current culture of court TV. However, uh, what Jed says is true. It's very important that the public be allowed. I don't know if it's that they're all older, could be. Uh, I think it could be this still not wanting to go down the slippery slope of televised proceedings.
0: Why should they be permitted to be anything other than absolutely transparent?
1: Well, historically, this is all quite odd, because if you go back to our founding, the courts were the best show in town. Everybody went down to the local courts to watch the the proceedings, whether it was a a murder trial or a thief or or a constitutional case. And when John Marshall or the other early justices ran the circuit, everybody'd go down and watch him participate right there in town. What gave our country legitimacy was these local justices and the traveling Supreme Court justices coming around and visiting, that was a major point. And the fact that in the last century, they pulled back behind a wall has not helped them, I would say. And it's certainly not in character for American history and the the democratic nature of our judiciary.
0: Few people are aware that buried in the last stimulus bill was a section that authorized video and telephone conferencing for court use but it ends 30 days after the national emergency ends. So why, why does it seem like the world is so afraid of creating a new paradigm and opening up courts to everybody for view?
4: Well, let's first talk about the, uh, the disaster that, that the pandemic has created for normal judicial process. I mean, the courts in New York, where, where I practice a little bit still is, you know, they just completely shut down think about the, res- the, the consequences of that for criminal defendants and, and people who have speedy trial rights and people who are behind bars. I mean, it's a huge problem. So I mean, we're just not set up as a judicial system to handle it, an epidemic like this. Now, it's a great thing that, that, that states and the federal government have tried to find ways to keep uh, the judicial processes going, uh, even you know, when they're shut down and shelter at home orders. So first of all, let's just you know, give some credit for that. Now, The question of like why it should end, you know, I think we have to get back to Jane's question of like, is there something special about the television medium that there's a legitimate reason to be worried about when it intrudes into a courtroom? I I think that's not a crazy concern to have. Courts are open to the public. It would be a whole different thing if if our courts, you know, had their doors shut. It's extremely unusual and rare for judicial processes to actually be closed down and to have no public access. Almost all of our judicial processes are open to the public in the sense the members of the public and journalists can come in and, and report and see what's happening now whether you want to let cameras in for folks who weren't used to being on camera i think it you know, makes them nervous and, and and it gets recorded in a certain way and, and, and they don't want people playing to the camera they don't want the lawyers playing to the camera and uh you know I, whether they were right or wrong I, I think it made them nervous and 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 i don't think that was crazy so i i, I have some sympathy for that too
0: so let 's talk about some of the cases at the Supreme Court that have been postponed this this term. The Alec Times had an article where they they said that there were significant rulings coming on gay rights and gun rights and immigration and religion and abortion, and now they have postponed the judgment on some of these cases. How do you feel about that, Susanna
3: My understanding is that they haven 't postponed judgment on orally, cases that have been orally argued. Of the group of cases that had not yet been orally argued when they shut down, they have postponed some of those to the fall, and they're hearing about 10 or 12 of them by telephone uh, before the end of the term. So, and I don't think it's political. I think they tried to pick what, in their view, were the most salient ones, the most important ones, the, most, the ones that mo- most people needed to know? I mean, they picked the Trump subpoena cases, for example.
0: There are actually three Trump cases, uh, Trump versus Mazars, uh, Deutsche Bank and Vance uh, subpoena demands private financial records and so on. They are going to be hearing these cases now, are they not?
3: At least they're, they're going to hear uh, Mazers and Deutsche Bank ones. All three,
0: all three. The they're
3: hearing all three at the same time.
0: And are they going to make a judgment before the election?
3: That's expected. They've asked for further briefing in the congressional subpoena cases. That's the Maser's and Deutsche Bank cases. They've asked for further briefing on political question. So they may not make a ruling on it at all. That is, they may Hold that it's uh, a political question, and they're not going to decide it, um, which is then really interesting. What happened here is that the su- the Congress did not issue any subpoenas to Trump. The Congress issued the subpoenas to these other entities that had financial records, um, and so and Trump sued to block those subpoenas. So if the and the lower courts refused to block them, so if the Supreme Court says the lower courts didn't even have any jurisdiction because it's a political question. Well, then those companies are free to uh, comply with the subpoena, and Trump can't stop them. On the other hand, if they decide not to comply with the subpoena, it's not clear who could make them.
0: So, these cases, just to be clear to our listeners, these are not about whether or not a president should release their financial records. These are about the power and enforceability of a subpoena.
3: Enforceability of a subpoena to third parties, not to the president himself, because the third
1: parties are in possession of the financial records. We've got three very different questions, and I think the political solution works best for this court. I don't like it in this case, because I think somebody's got to make a decision. There
0: seems to be quite a few Trump cases. One of the other ones I just wanted to get your feedback on, Mr. Trump may shut down the program that protects young immigrants known as DREAMers from deportation, the DACA case. Where do you see that going?
4: The real issues here, how much of our laws are going to be made by executive decree? This is a huge and growing problem, and it's actually part of the coronavirus lockdown uh, set of issues too. because. We have this increase of of laws being made by executive decree uh, uh, rather than through some kind of legislative process. There are times when you have to do it that way and can be legitimate, and states have laws of their own that govern that sort of thing when it comes to what their governors are doing. But what's happened at the federal level is more and more federal regulations, federal lawmaking is taking place through the vehicle of essentially executive orders, what I call decrees a second ago. And it's not like this is a Republican or Democrat thing. I mean, Bush did it, but then Obama did it even more, and now Trump is doing more. And so part of the question here is, can the Trump administration, through the vehicle of an executive order, undo something that was done under the Obama administration by an executive order? And in a way, this is more of almost like an administrative law or or separation of powers question rather than a straight-up question of immigration law or the rights of folks who have been here their whole lives, essentially. What are their rights? What are their due process rights or other rights? It's actually the legal issue isn't really so much about
0: that. It's even more direct than that because it would appear that the whole concept of checks and balances is toothless. Uh, Trump decided to defund the World Health Organization. Congress had decided to fund the World Health Organization. Nothing seems to be happening. Therefore, it's a toothless rule, actually giving the president almost an unlimited right for executive power.
3: The Imperial Presidency, and Jed is right that this is not uh, something that's Republican or Democratic. The presidents have been increasingly grabbing power for the last 30 years. What really worries me about this Supreme Court, and not just the conservative wing, but the entire Supreme Court, um, is that it is generally favorable toward exercises of executive power in large part because almost every justice has significant experience in the executive branch. And we don't have any justices who have experience in the legislative branch, and we did until recently. We don't have any justices who have experience in state government, and we did until recently. So I think that the the judges, the justices have become much less diverse in some ways, including in their backgrounds, and that ends up redounding to the benefit of the executive branch.
4: From a constitutional professor's point of view, it's amazing to me that the Supreme Court of, the co- of this country has never just upped and said, uh, there are limits to what the president can do and here's what they are and, and we're not gonna, we're gonna put a stop to this. But uh, so so Trump is doing it, but, but every president has done it. To
2: pick up on what Jed said about the limits of executive power and doing things by executive order, I think more and more people in the United States are chafing under these quarantines, and you're hearing more and more of them saying, can the government really do this? And this is unconstitutional. Can the government really do this? And when the government's telling you, you cannot earn a living, are there limits to what they can do?
4: The United States Constitution does not go on holiday in an emergency. Unlike many constitutions all over the world, the United States Constitution does not have a clause that says, you know, the government is free to derogate from these rights, you know, whenever it thinks that it's really important to do so. You know, people forget that. Under precedent that goes back 100 years, courts at a minimum, at a minimum would require that these lockdown orders be, you know, reasonable and uh, have a substantial relation to a legitimate governmental purpose. Uh, It's arguable that in fact, the judicial test should be stronger, that it should be a necessity test. Now, you know, I I don't, I, I doubt that under, Given current information, I doubt courts would be very likely to find that that these lockdowns or stay-at-home orders were unconstitutional, uh, given present, you know, information about the dangers, I mean, you know, the possibility of 100,000, 200,000, a million people dying. Uh, so I, I doubt we could see, we would see a serious intervention like that, but we don't have mass detentions in the United States. We don't have them. They're unconstitutional. And if And this looks a little bit like mass detention because there's no individualized suspicion or ground for ordering anybody into their house. The the thing is that it's an unprecedented situation with a massive risk to human life. So I'm just saying what's obvious.
3: Yeah, Jed is right that the Constitution doesn't go on holiday during a crisis, but no constitutional right is absolute. And so as long as laws are necessary, or the lockdown orders are necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest, they can trample on any constitutional right. Now there's already been litigation in the lower courts where people have claimed that closing gun stores has violated their second amendments, that um, prohibiting in-person church services has violated their uh, freedom of religion rights. And of course, that shutting down abortion clinics has violated their uh, reproductive rights. Um, I assume, I haven't heard of any cases where people are saying that their essentially right to to do business, their liberty, general liberty rights, whether those have been violated, I assume there will be such cases if there have not yet been. Like Jed, I can't imagine a court at least with the information that we have now, concluding that the government doesn't have enough of a compelling interest.
0: Well, we're gonna have to put a pin in it here right now. Thanks so much, Professor Susanna Sherry, Jed Rubinfeld, Ed Larson, and Jane Albrecht. Really appreciate you Zooming in and meeting us in the middle. Have a good day, stay safe, be well, everyone. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. It will be- From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.